Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us on the desolate wastes of the planet Khan, surrounded by the shattered remains of spaceships in a valley fringed by steep mountains. We're making our way to a grim building at the valley's end as a storm rages overhead and our path is illuminated by flashes of lightning. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today are two doctors, Dr. Una McCormack and Dr. Matthew Sweet. Uh, Matthew Sweet is a writer, broadcaster, cultural historian and presenter of the BBC radio programmes Sound of Cinema, Free Thinking and The Philosopher's Arms. He has judged the Costa Book Award, edited Wilkie Collins's The Woman in White for Penguin Classics and was series consultant on the Showtime Sky Atlantic series Penny Dreadful. His books include Inventing the Victorians, Shepparton Babylon, and most recently, Operation Chaos, The Vietnam Deserters Who Fought the CIA, The Brainwashers, and Themselves, which was published by Picador in 2018. Pleasingly, last time I saw Matthew Sweet was when I bumped into him at a Matthew Sweet concert. true, isn't it? And he was in the company of Albert de Petrillo, the commissioning editor at BBC Books, who commissions the Doctor Who range and who I spoke to just yesterday so he could bring me up to date on a few key matters. So if you listen to this, Albert, hello. And was it Albert who, who persuaded you to go and see Matthew Sweet? It was his idea. I've always thought that it would be a good, a good idea uh, to be in the presence of Matthew Sweet, mainly because I assume that he gets as, as many communications. Well, he might. I don't know. He get, I get, occasionally get tweets saying, really love that concert you gave um, in, the, uh, in the Dew Drop-In in Nebraska. And I would say, it's very charming of you to say so. Um, but I assume he gets a bit of, a bit of you know, odd remarks about um, you know, things that happened in the 19th century. Or, uh, Is there any Blinovich limitation effect? Or, uh, no. I think it, <laughs> we didn't get too close. So we didn't short out the time differential or the kind of the nominative differential, whatever it would have been. But I did, I did think, should I go and talk to him? And I thought, well, what earth would I say? <laughs> Hello, I'm Matthew Sweet. <laughs> are there as many Matthew Sweets as there are Andy Millers? Uh, no, oh, there no, are no, no, no. far more Andy Millers. John Lloyd was going to say, I always thought it was a brilliant time. He was going to do a talk show called The John Lloyd Show, and he was just going to interview other people called John Lloyd. I mean, some of them are obviously famous, but some of them not famous. Quite a good Dave idea. Gorman did that, didn't he? He, he tried, did, yeah. He did, didn't he? Down Dave Gorman's, yeah. yeah. This Matthew Sweet, not the other. Well, we don't know about the other one, but this Matthew Sweet. You booked the wrong one. Come on, admit it. You've just, you just booked the wrong one. Yeah. You're going to ask me to sing Evan? <laughs> Angeline and talk about dolls with big eyes, aren't you? Yeah, where will you follow up girlfriend properly? Uh, this Matthew Sweet is also a notable Doctor Who fan and has written several Doctor Who audio plays and short stories, including one in the Doctor Who Target Storybook, which was published by BBC Books last year, the last volume of Doctor Who fiction to which Terence Dix himself Indeed. contributed a Doctor Who story, as did Yay. our second guest today, Una McCormack. Welcome back, Una. Oh, and can I just say, Albert has given us a World Doctor Who exclusive that we can announce on Backlisted towards the end of the show. So keep <laughs> listening, Who fans who may have joined us for the first time, because uh, we've got something special coming up near the end. Uh, Una McCormack is a New York Times and USA Today best-selling science fiction writer who specialises in TV tie-in fiction, particularly Star Trek and Doctor Who. How many different Doctors have you written so far, Una? Oh! <gasps> 
Oh, crumbs. I'm getting quite close to a full house, actually. I've done 1, 2, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. So, uh, yeah. Wow. 10, no, I've not done 10. I've done 9. I've not done 10. Yeah. So, yeah. And have you got a book coming out soon? You have, I do, you? yeah. Got- I've, got a, I've got a Star Trek book out sort of now-ish about Janeway, if you like, Voyager. And I've got a Doctor Who book out in December, which is the end of the Time Lord Victorious saga called All Flesh is Grass, uh, which is quite hard to say with my Lancashire accent. All Flesh is Grass. That you're saying it the proper Aye. way. There's no other way of saying that. Yeah, ass is grass, as we were calling it. And so. which doctor is that? 13? No. Uh... That's uh, eight, nine, and 10. Yes. So I ticked off another lot of them, yeah, with this book. So. And for civilians, which doctors are those? They're played by actors, you know. <laughs> uh, Paul McGann, Christopher Eccleston, and David Tennant are the, the, the human forms behind those incarnations. Una has taught creative writing at university level and continues to mentor writers, particularly of genre fiction. She is chair of the editorial board for a new initiative with Goldsmiths Press to publish intersectional feminist science fiction. And of course, previously on Backlisted, she has talked about Deep Breath, Georgette Heyer, episode 30, Anita Bruckner, episode 49, J.R.R. Tolkien, episode 71, Russell Hoban, live on stage, episode 98. And a couple of months ago, William Golding, episode 114. Now, look at the range of that. Una needs to start referring to backlisted subjects by number only, because the real backlisted fans will love that. Oh, yes, I I, I remember covering 98 and 114. Anyway, I think it would be fair to say that Una is a backlisted stalwart. Uh, it would. Now, in case you hadn't already guessed, the book we're planning to discuss is a Doctor Who book, uh, specifically the 1977 target novelisation of the 1976 TV story Doctor Who and the Brain of Morbius by Terence Dix. So to understand why we've chosen this among the hundreds of target books, we need a bit of background, to which I'm looking to you, Andy. Yes, thanks, John. The first book that I ever read cover to cover was Doctor Who and the Brain of Morbius. And I got it out of the library the week it was published in 1977. And we went to visit my auntie Hilda. And uh, after I'd been in to say hello, uh, I was allowed to go back to the car and read my book. And that's what I did all afternoon. I read it in one go. And so it holds a very uh, sentimental uh, place in my heart, as do many other of the Doctor Who books published by Target Books, over 150, many of which were written by Terence Dix. And I've written about the influence that my love of those particular books and Terence's writing in those books, I've written about what that gave me as a, as a child reader and also about, you know, I wasn't alone in that. Thousands of uh, children, tens of thousands of children will have read those books in the 70s, 80s and right through to the present day. And Terence is a figure, as we'll talk about, of huge importance in the cultural literary life of this country since the 1970s but he only rarely gets talked about in the round as a writer uh, as a writer of books and I thought well we're a books podcast and we know people who can divide their time between both Doctor Who and books and other subjects so why don't we convene to talk about Terence and um, my essay about Terence Dix is has been published in a in a new book called The Gifts of Reading 
which came out in September, essays on the joys of reading, giving and receiving books, all the money from which goes to charity. So before we talk about Terence Dix and about the brain of Morbius, John, what have you been reading this week? Uh-huh. As it turns out, Andy, I've been reading a book called The Gifts of Reading. Oh, that's uh, so kind of you. <laughs> which uh, which does indeed have the excellent essay, which I won't dwell on, that you've written called Andy Miller and the Brain of Terence Dix. It's a lovely collection, I have to say, for anybody who reads. And I know a lot of backlisted uh, listeners participated recently when we asked them about the kind of books that they'd like to give. Uh, you've basically got a lot of a lot of authors at- attacking that question but also looking at the idea of the gift in that sort of Lewis Hyde way, the anthropologist way, of the gift economy. There's something wonderful about giving a a person a story. I think it's it's old, I think it was Bertrand, uh, maybe Bernard Shaw who said, if I give give you a story and you give, you know, we we each give other stories, we end up, we both end up with two stories. It's not like giving somebody an apple. Uh, and that's sort of the, the the way the book proceeds. I think the book was inspired by Robert McFarlane's essay, The Gifts of Reading, where he wrote beautifully about being inspired by a friend of his who he was teaching with in China. And then uh, he got given the gift of Patrick Lee Fermer's the, uh, the Time of Gifts about his amazing walk through Europe. So it starts with a, a, a beautiful McFarlane essay, and then you work through writers from all over the world, Candice Carty-Williams writing a, a really lovely essay. In a way, that the, the nice thing about the book is it goes from people who are, it goes from writers writing about the books that turn them onto reading. She does that beautifully. But there's also a brilliant scene. Basically, her sister, who doesn't read, is given uh, all the, the, the Mallory Blackman books signed not only signed she thinks if they're signed i can nick them and read them myself but they're actually dedicated to her sister and she said that the pain of that has lived with her through her life so you've got that you've got a wonderful essay by roddy doyle on discovering um jeff dyer's book uh, uh broadsword calling broadsword which i've read is a lovely small book and he, he talks about how that he gives that book to lots of people in his life particularly people he thinks don't read because they do watch movies so there's a lot of that i suppose in the way that you do in your in your essay in there andy about it's not just about about reading there's a lot about reading there's a lovely essay by jackie morris about the importance of libraries there's a wonderful i thought i might there's a, a, a marvelous bit of michael Andarchi on tony morrison there's a lovely Max Porter essay where he keeps you guessing until the very last line what the book it, it, it is, the small, important, powerful book that he, that he gives to people um, to get them to think differently about the world. Yes, Max, who has been on Backlisted a couple of times. And there's also essays here by Philip Pullman, who, who we did The Anatomy of Melancholy with, and S.F. Saeed, who came on to talk about Alan Garner. I like, I just tell you, there's one little, I thought I might read just to give people a flavour, Andy, a little bit from the Iranian writer Dina Niari's work, where she uh, arrives in Oklahoma. And I just thought it captured the spirit of the book, but also I think the spirit of, of the, the, the liberation that books represent for people. In Oklahoma, where we were granted asylum, my first and best gift from an American was a library card arranged for me by our sponsor, Mary Jean, who at nearly 60 wore tube tops and drank blue slushies and shot for hairspray. Mary Jean told me that I could take home 30 books at a time, and she let me loose with hours to spend among the stacks. The gift, she thought, was time and access to words so that my English would improve. In fact, the English was easy. I was young. I learned it in no time. The real gift was the permission, the trust. In Iran, we weren't allowed to read just anything. 
many books were banned and my mother monitored everything we read. She was religious and strict. To be set free inside a library, to build a pile of books without having my choices checked, this was my first true taste of freedom. And because I was driven by all that was uncensored, my tastes became eclectic and strange. One week I liked Native American folklore, the kind with tortured ghosts and inexplicable skinnings. The next week, stories of cults and witchcraft, witch trials, burnings. The next week, tales of troublesome puberty. The next, sexually charged kidnappings. All these things I had to hide from my mother. I had dark taste. She covered her own dark patches with treacle and religion and surface good deeds. She cooked for everyone. She only read the Bible and medical books. And I just like that idea that it's that little secret escaping thing that everybody does as a reader. You've got doors open and you're free, that sense of freedom. It's, it's a really beautiful, anybody who loves books and reading ought to, ought to buy, read and support this book. Yeah, I should say a bit about every, the, the proceeds from this book go to a charity called Room to Read, uh, which was founded in 2000. It's a non-profit organisation which has transformed the lives of millions of children in low-income countries, mostly in Asia and Africa focusing on literacy and gender equality in education. And um, it's become an influential leader in the field of local language, the children's local language book development. So they, they've published more than a thousand titles in 40 languages around the world. And they think they've reached uh, 20 million children across Bangladesh, Cambodia, Grenada, Honduras, India, Indonesia, Jordan, Myanmar, Sri Lanka, Vietnam, Zambia, and more. So if you want to read about reading and you want to give some money to charity that does brilliant work around the world with reading, and you want to find some really good essays, plus one with some jokes about Croydon in it, then uh, this book is in the bookshops now. It's called The Gifts of Reading, and it's published by Weidenfels and Nicholson. It's great, and it's full of brilliant. I, I scribbled down about 10 books that uh, that people talked about that I, I hadn't read and want, want to want to pursue so for people who are looking for recommendations it's full of them let's pick this up again shortly anyone like to describe to the listeners what's just happened? Well, we heard the deadly dulcimer of Dudley Simpson there, I think, narrating something of the landscape of, of the planet Khan, a windswept planet, a planet with very practical uh, streaks of lightning embedded somewhere into its ceiling. And we see, I suppose, a scene of carnage, really, don't we, Una? We see a, we see a very excellent bit of Doctor Who costume recycling as well. We do. Yeah, we see a, a fine creature about whom we learn a great deal in the book. And what what did that squeak betoken that we heard there? His head is getting chopped off, which is <laughs> that's right. Proper good BBC decapitation there. Proper squelch. The poor poor creatures. Poor Chris has been for the chopper, and uh, that's what five seconds that we get there. Um, Terence in the in a manner known to many of us on a tight deadline with a high word count. Spins three pages <laughs> of incredible prose. 
<laughs> I think in a bit you're going to you're going to read us something of that, aren't you? Yes, I certainly am. So we're talking about the novelisation of uh, the story from which that music comes, uh, the Brain of Morbius, novelised as Doctor Who and the Brain of Morbius, and as is traditional on Batlisted. Let me ask Matthew first. I mean, can you remember watching the Brain of Morbius, or can you remember reading the Brain of Morbius? I remember both very, very distinctly, really, because it's one of Doctor Who's strangest and and nastiest stories. So it had a it had a strong effect, and I think it was also repeated. So it's kind of embedded in my mind more more firmly than most. But I do remember reading the the novelization as well, and it's very bright yellow cover. And I can remember reading it in bed in Hull in the year it came out. And I also just as I as I say this, I can remember something of the circumstances I was reading in it because I remember there is a reference to the Sargasso Sea in the story because the planet Khan has this magnetic effect and uh, through the, the strange influence of the, of its inhabitants, it draws spaceships to it and makes them crash. And, uh, and so it's described as the Sargasso Sea of spaceships. And I can remember calling my grandmother up, uh, who must have been babysitting that, that night. And instead of being asked, can I have a glass of water? She got asked what the Sargasso Sea was. And did that did that colour your reading of Jean Rhys many years later? I d- totally did, yes. Yeah, yeah. The Sargasso Sea of Khan is much wider, in fact, than the one of Jean Rhys. Jean Rhys and the Sargasso Sea of Khan. That's the adventure we all want to see. Uh, Uno, when did you first... You're a, you're, we're going to say you're significantly younger than us. I'm, I'm slightly younger than you. Don't, not, don't overstate it. I'm a little bit... Okay, you're I'm, significantly younger than young us. Young enough not to remember Pertwee, which I think is a, a sort of distinguishing. Uh, and do you remember the sto- this story being on telly? Um, no, I, I must have been four, which I think is just... I mean, I almost certainly watched it. I had much older siblings, so I, I was practically feral and just watched what they watched. Um, so it was definitely on, but I don't remember it. But what I do distinctly remember is sitting cross-legged in Eccleston Library, St Helens, and the the first shelf of the uh, the kids section, down at the bottom, uh, that bottom shelf was was D, uh, and in particular it was Dix and Dickinson, and I distinctly remember sitting there reading pretty much from one end to the other. And before I ask about the target novelizations in general, I'd like to ask Mitchinson. Uh, how old were you when you first read Doctor Who and the Brain of Morbius? Um, I was 57 years old. Um, and can I just say, I feel I want my childhood back. I, f- I feel like I want to go back now to being uh, sort of eight or nine. I don't know why I didn't read any of the novelizations. I, I, was, I was a keen fan of the show. I think maybe even had some annuals back in the 70s. But I remember uh, Troughton, I remember... I think the earliest ones, I remember the terrifying Cybermen, which I think was his last story. And I remember the Abominable Snowman as well. But you said you said a very poignant thing to me where you said you, you moved to New Zealand, didn't you, when you were 12? So Yeah, that was it. That was bang. There was no it we just ended. So it's it's been very it's very wrapped up for me in a in a sort of nostalgia for that that particular bit of my childhood and feeling that I'd sort of lost it. And we have a running thing on that listed. But you actually said to me, and and with all due sincerity, having never read any of these books, and you've read like about half a dozen, haven't you? In I the... have. I'm a, I'm now officially addicted. I'm, I, I literally crack. They are like crack. The only thing is, I wish they were a bit longer. But what is Terence Dix, 
John. He is, <laughs> without a shadow of a doubt, Andy, and with no irony and no side eye, a master storyteller. He just is. He just is. <laughs> he exactly is, listeners. We finally found I one. Mean, he can do. He can do in a page what it would take lesser storytellers several several chapters. I mean, he's extraordinary. Okay, so before I'm, I'm, we're going to talk in a minute about what the target books represented for for children in the seventies and for Doctor Who fans since then. But I thought we ought to hear a bit of the storytelling mastery we've just been talking about. Uh, so this is an excerpt from the opening chapter of uh, Doctor Who and the Brain of Morbius, and we've got a special guest here to read it for us. The changing face of Doctor Who. The cover illustration of this book portrays the fourth Doctor Who. Me. A wheezing, groaning sound filled the night air of Khan, merging with the occasional rumblings of thunder. A blue shape materialized out of the air. In outward form, it was a police box of the kind once used in a country named England on a distant planet called Earth. Inwardly, it was something very different. A space-time craft called the TARDIS. The door opened, and a very tall, very angry man sprang out. He was casually dressed in a loose, comfortable jacket and trousers, with a battered, broad-brimmed hat jammed onto a tangle of curly hair. An extraordinary long scarf was wound round his neck. He shook his fist at the lowering night sky and shouted, All right, come on out, just show yourselves, I dare you. A slender, dark-haired girl followed him out of the TARDIS. She was carrying a big torch, which she shone round the unfriendly-looking landscape. She shuddered, not very favourably impressed by what she saw. Nodding towards the TARDIS, she interrupted the doctor's tirade. Why can't it just have gone wrong again? The doctor whirled round indignantly. What? The TARDIS. After all, added Sarah unkindly, it wouldn't exactly be the first time, would it? Miracle of technology though it was, the TARDIS did have an undeniable tendency to be erratic. Take its present shape, for example. The TARDIS was supposed to change its appearance to blend in with the surroundings. In a forest it should look like a tree. Here it should have taken on the appearance of one of the surrounding rocks. Unfortunately, this chameleon mechanism had long ago jammed, and the TARDIS now arrived on alien worlds in the constant guise of a London police box. This was only a minor inconvenience. More serious were the undoubted faults in the TARDIS's guidance circuitry. Although it could travel in space and time, the TARDIS had an awkward habit of delivering its passengers to the wrong planet, or the wrong century. God, that's marvellous. We should just give over the rest of this hour to that, really. But anyway, Chameleon is now canon. Well, it is, isn't it? it? Tom's commitment to pronouncing it that way goes back decades, because in one of Terence's scripts, The Horror of Fang Rock, he says it exactly that way, to the bafflement of everybody but him, I think. So Terence died in 2019, and I, re I saw you tweeting about it, and very poignantly, and you were saying, these books meant so much to me when I was growing up, and I've carried them everywhere with me, and I hope I, I, hope I, I never, you know, lose them. They're, they're a big part of me. Could you sum up for people why those books are so important to, uh, let's say, to Doctor Who fans in the first instance? Well, I think to Doctor Who fans, they were important because they were 
Doctor Who for most of the time. Uh, you saw these stories on television. And of course, if you were if you were late home, you missed them. And that was that. Uh, and they could seem, I think, sometimes like half-remembered dreams, the actual experience of uh, of watching them on television. But the novelization materialized them. And it made it possible to re-enter those dreams through the the wonderful transparent constructions of of Terence's prose, uh, and I can remember they were they were very very important to me, and for a long time, I think probably for stretches, I might have gone I don't know like six months or more, more than or a year really without reading anything other than the words of, of Terence Dix as a child, and I can remember an exercise at, at school, which I suppose we must have been I don't know I've been seven or eight, I think. Uh, and the teacher, Mr. Waterworth, a man whose name still poisons my mouth as I say it, who was probably only in his 30s and who was a terrible bully and who I'm now going to tell you pulled a chair out from under me because I couldn't say my three times table. Uh, and it's an event that that marks me in a way that his other reaction to me marked me. And that was when we were asked what our favourite authors uh, were I said Terence sticks and he wouldn't write it down on the on the form because he said oh, it wasn't a proper book. And where are you now, Mr. Waterworth? Well, if he and his lawyers are listening, I've sat out. I've sat outside his yes, house. Exactly, Waterworth. Yes. But the thing Waterworth. is, you know, this is all part of my strong feeling about Terence is that Terence's strengths as a writer, both as a, a television and film writer and as a writer for children, are obscured by the, the gigantic success of this range of books. Um, they, they're estimated to have sold 13 million copies, 13 million copies of a range of books, of which Terence wrote a approximately 60 slightly more than that i think and i una let me ask you so we're talking about the brain of morbius and we've talked to matthew about reading it as a child and what it meant to doctor who fans because they couldn't see the tv series and so the books were their their main way in is this a children's book um i i think it is but i think it's doing several things it's got its eye on the child who is reading it alone and it also perhaps has an eye on where that child will be by the end of the book. And part of what he's doing in the course of that book, I think, is helping you become a slightly more sophisticated reader. So, um, first of all, they're really good reads. Yeah, you're kind of propelled through them. They're not souped up scripts. So, I, you know, I've I, the fastest I've written a Doctor Who book is 21 days. OK, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how quickly he was turning these around, but he doesn't just dump the dialogue on the page. What he does is he writes prose narrative. He is translating these. He's, he's adapting them. So, and Matthew, Terence's prose in these books, what would you say are the hallmarks of the prose? Absolute clarity, really, I think. Absolute clarity. And you're never really in doubt about about what's happening. It takes you into the world of the story, uh, unflashy and humble. I found a, uh, an interview with, with Terence that he gave in the early 80s to a paper in Northern Ireland where he sort of sets out, he was there for a literary festival and he was, uh, and he was setting out. And really what he says there is really exactly what Una was saying. He said, what young people really hate is to be pushed aside. They don't like being told this is grown-ups business. What I am talking about is a sort of kid's lib. A lot of people who write children's books have a tendency to preach or to moralise, which children spot and resent immediately. 
Like adults, children in the end want interesting, exciting and enjoyable stories with pace and movement. Never, never talk down to them. So when this story was commissioned for TV, Terence delivered the scripts. And I know you've got a thing to read us related to this. And then the scripts are uh, rewritten by the script editor of Doctor Who at that time, whose name was Robert Holmes, amidst some disagreements, which we'll talk about. And then Terence is given the task of novelising his own deeply, dramatically altered script. So here's a clip from 2009. First of all, we're going to hear the Doctor Who writer Gareth Roberts talking about the novelisation of the brain of Morbius, and then Terence saying what he was trying to achieve. With the novelization of The Brain of Morbius, uh, Terence had written the original script, then Robert Holmes took it away and rewrote it, and it went, under, went out under a pseudonym. Terence presumably could have taken the opportunity to change it back or fiddle around with it again, but he didn't. I think this probably goes back again to the circumstance that in the 70s, we didn't have videos, so Terence wanted to give a faithful recreation of what had been on TV. When I came to uh, novelize it, I had no temptation at all to go back and novelize my original scripts, or the script the way it had been. I was novelizing the vein of Morbius that the viewer had seen on the screen, and that's what I gave them. Una, I think you've got, haven't you, Terence's little note to um, Bob Holmes? I do, yes, in the uh, wonderful biography of Richard Milsworth's biography of, of Robert Holmes. So I, I, think it's, I think it's nice to read this cold and not know any context uh, about it. So this is uh, his, his letter, Terence's letter back to, to Bob. Thank you for the scripts, which I've now read through. Needless to say, you've done a grand job in the time available. However, I can't help feeling that the removal of the robot, the central pivot of the story, has left a more conventional story with the plot sometimes a bit thin on the ground, and you've moved a bit further towards horror than I'd care to myself. All that's debatable. What isn't debatable is that these scripts don't contain a line of my dialogue and just aren't written by me. So I'll have to ask you to take my name off them, if only to avoid breaking the Trades Description Act. Hope this doesn't add to your problems too much. I'll leave it to you to devise some bland pseudonym. Ah, oh, well, yes, Robert Holmes having a sense of humour and the relationship between these two men being very deep, uh, I think. He he put it out under a bland pseudonym, literally. Uh, the episode went out uh, written by Robin Bland, a robbed plot and bland, according to the man who originally... Well, no, no, it's not the story that was bland at all, but it's, it's a, a kind of self-effacement. And I think this is a really uh, important aspect of of Terence Dix's uh, writing and his personality too, the humility of it, the humility of not choosing to have any, to restore anything to a story that was rewritten in a way that, uh, that you know, that's a nice diplomatic letter. He was horrified actually when he, when he discovered it had been taken out of his hands because he was on holiday and he wasn't around for the rewrites and he thought, uh, he thought he'd delivered it and it would all be fine and it wasn't. So I think you see that here, the generosity of the man there too and the, the, the humour of the relationship between him and Robert Holmes. And if Matthew, if one talked to Terence, you know, we've seen him interviewed, he was interviewed a lot towards the end of his life. What were the things that he prided himself on? in relation to what you were just talking about. You know, he, 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 he would not see himself as an auteur, would he? That was not how he saw his strength. No, he didn't see himself as an ideas man either. He saw himself as a kind of craftsperson, really, I think. And, and that's absolutely what he was. And somebody who, who had fun and who wanted other people to have fun. He wanted stories to be exciting. In, in some ways, I think he... I don't know how 
how deep this was. Um, and I would have loved the opportunity to probe it a bit. I do the interviews for the, the Doctor Who Blu-ray box sets, and we had Terence um, in our sights, and we're asking him, asking him for a, for a proper sit-down interview where we could really actually go into the non-Doctor Who stuff as well, because I think one of the burdens of, of being a big contributor to Doctor Who is that you get asked about it all the time and, and nothing else. But I would have loved to have known more about his, his early life, which is rather sketchy. I've got some, some sort of theories and thoughts about it that I would have really wanted to put to him and the, the culture that shaped him, um, both in his background and, and academically, that, that, that gave him those, those um, abilities, allowed that talent to come out. And he saw himself as somebody, if he, I can remember seeing him interviewed and him saying, you know, when, it, when they come to write my epitaph, uh, I'd like to say it's something like I, 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 he fixed it. He always fixed it. Well, he did. And that's why he was there. That's why he was there. Doctor Who was in a parlor state, script-wise, when he arrived. He was brought in as a fixer. Things were collapsing left, right and centre. He came in and he made it work. And, he, you know, he overcame what seemed like unsurmountable problems. And actually, when he went away... It all happened again. Robert Holmes, Robert Holmes, who was his successor, um, he went to see him and found him in a state of total panic with half-written scripts all over the place. He actually was a, a, a brilliant man in a crisis. And Una, you were, I know you, when we were talking about this, you were saying that you read some of Terence's other books when you were a child as well. Yeah, I've, I've, only a very little. I read, I read some of his science fiction. I read uh, uh, the StarQuest books, which remind me a little bit of the... Um, the frontier in space stories there's a sort of big galactic civilization but the same hallmarks are kind of um you know a, a, a absolutely a story that propels through that you're engaged immediately engaged and excited about children as the as the gateway character which of course is a standard for children's literature but yes you're quite right he likes to write about if you look at his other series i mean we're talking about a writer who who managed to produce approximately 220 books yep and I think the hallmarks of his writing for me would be not just his Doctor Who, but but this kind of publishing as well. They were on time. They were producible, but also, and not everyone hits this trifecta, particularly with Doctor Who, they're really rather good. So it's a kind of sweet spot that uh, uh, you, you, could do, you could do good and late and you could do uh, bad and producible, um, but he does all three. I'm so interested in this idea too that they were that they, you know in an age where there wasn't video that this was the this was how those, these stories lived in in the imaginations of children, and one of the things having watched the TV adaptation of the the, the, the TV original and, what, and reading the book, just there's so much more in the book you know that uh, where Sarah Jane is is blinded and walking through the landscape. I mean it's a it's a real it's a real sort of trek across the you know, across the plain of Gorgoroth, like Tolkien, like whereas it's it's obviously a, a bit of, a bit shit on the TV with Liz Sladen just bumping into a few polystyrene rocks. And I I think he knows what a child's imagination can do. That he he can actually he can take he, right into a child. You can you can you don't have to sort of lay it on a stick because the child is gobbling this up and doing most of that work for him. I think Matthew, two questions: How did and how does a Terence Dix novelization differ from other novelizations in the range? You know, when you were a kid, did you know you were reading a Terence Dix one? And how do they differ when you read them now? You know, I think I appreciate them more now than I than I did then. Because Terence did so many, 
I think we were apt to undervalue him rather. And so when uh, there was a policy to get uh, authors, the authors of the original script in to novelise their works, even though this was work that was 20 years old at the time. This was greeted by me uh, and I think most Doctor Who fans being a real step in the right direction. But actually a lot of the novels turned out to be kind of puddingy uh, and uh, slightly cranky and not really so readable uh, as Terence. So I think in a way I appreciate him I appreciate him more now. And I, I can remember sort of feeling a bit disappointed sometimes that um, they had gone to him rather than to their uh, uh, original authors. But but now I, you know, that's not a feeling I have. I think that he, uh, it's just so clean the way that he writes. Doctor Who books, uh, well, Doctor Who in general, and uh, as part of that Doctor Who books, have played an enormous part in my career. I mean, I have in fact done a lot of other things. Uh, um, in which nobody ever takes the slightest interest. You know, you never get interviewed about them. You, ne you never get... Uh, I mean, I worked for a long time. I script edited and later produced the classic serial. No, they never have any classic serial conventions, you know. Well, you can't do novelizations because uh, <laughs> they're books to start with, as it were. The big success and the one that always gets the fame and the glory and the autographs and the compliments, or, of course, the brickbats from time to time, they can be a touchy lot fans, you know, is Doctor Who. So it has played an enormous part in my life. So this is a really important thing for me, the fact that when he leaves the Doctor Who or writing for Doctor Who or the world of Doctor Who, first off, he, he script edits and then he produces the classic serial on BBC on Sunday tea time, which we'll all remember because, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, these things were watched widely um i'll just read you the his credits because john particularly i think you'll be able to spot a pattern here so he script edits the following adaptations in 1981 great expectations and then in 1982 stalky and co the hound of the baskervilles starring um tom baker as sherlock holmes beau jest dombey and son jane eyre Goodbye, Mr. Chips, The Invisible Man, The Prisoner of Zender and The Pickwick Papers. And then when he takes over in production, he does Oliver Twist, Alice in Wonderland, David Copperfield, The Diary of Anne Frank and Vanity Fair. And to me, that's totally fascinating. You know, here's somebody who has taken mass popular TV and novelised it for children. And now it's working in the other direction where he's taking classic novels and he's adapting them and make, putting them out there for a, a family audience at tea time. This is his revenge on F.R. Levis. Yes, this has just got to yeah, be right. It's got to be right. It's absolutely got to be. I mean, that's my feeling. Yeah. <laughs> I can't prove it. But do you want to say about, about F.R. Levis and about Terence... Uh, Studying, yeah. Him. Well, F. R. Levis was, uh, you know, the constructor of the great tradition. He's the canon man. He's the man who, uh, together with his wife Queenie, got together and decided which English novels ought to we ought to read and which we shouldn't really bother ourselves with. And for many years, Dickens was on that list. Although, just as just as as Terence started working on Doctor Who, Levis produced his uh, his kind of apologia where he admitted that Dickens should have been on uh, that list. Those things coincide exactly. But um, you know, Terence was. Ter 
Terence was propelled into into that world thanks, I think, to a to a very enlightened education that he received at East Ham Grammar School, which had a good record of sending working class boys in that direction. And I think there's I think there's a real untold story about Terence Dix here, which I think I, I, I'd like to try and sketch out before we get into Cambridge and into into Levis's study. Um, Terence came from a, a very working class background. Um, his parents were publicans. Uh, they ran the Fox and Hounds pub in Forest Gate. But I think in a way more important than that, and I would, you know, research needs to be done on this. The influence of the, the literature of the Jewish East End on Terence Dix. I'm not sure whether Terence's heritage was Jewish, but I've been looking, it, done a bit of kind of who do you think you are on this. And I think it does very, the, the, the spelling of the surname does flicker between anglicized and Germanic versions uh, as the century uh, starts. His family are all working in the tailoring trade um, in, in the East End in the, early, uh, in the early 19th century. His father was, um, uh, in the obits, it said he was a tailor's salesman. But on the census, it actually says tailoress, interestingly. So he was a salesman with a female boss. But one bit of his uh, output that's really fallen off the radar is um, his first ever broadcast uh, work was a sitcom on the light programme called Joey. And it's described as a comedy of East End Cafe Society. Um, and uh, it's uh, about uh, a man called Joey Green who tries out various jobs, but he hangs around this cafe in the East End. Joey is played by Harry Fowler. Uh, the cafe proprietor is called Jaime Rosen, and he's played by Alfie Bass. This is kind of A-grade Jewish comic culture of the period. If Terence didn't have that, in his background in some quite profound way, even if it's just that he's sort of steeped in it all. It's a rather odd act of, of, of appropriation, I think. Surely this must be something that's really in the heart of him. And also, uh, the boys who were being sent from uh, East Ham Grammar School to Downing, well, his most illustrious predecessor was Wolf Mankiewicz, who was, um, you know, a kind of icon of that uh, literature, wrote a kid for two farthings, and also strayed into a popular territory that, uh, that Levis would have deeply disapproved of. And then at the end of his career, when he's producer of the classic serials, who does he get in but Alexander Barron? Author of The Low Life, featured on Backlisted. Who is the other kind of great novelist, so I think that if Terence didn't have Jewish heritage himself, which is a you know I mean yet to be yet to be discovered as far as I know, the the literature and the culture of that world, he kind of uh, he existed in that as a as a child and as a teenager in the East End. But the East End is still there throughout his career, absolutely. Well, it's and certainly yes, yeah. Mitch, why wouldn't Levis have approved of something so improving as? serialising these classic novels on television? Uh, he really hated the BBC, Levis. I mean, it's, it's, it's a... Com Levis is complicated, OK, because he kind of, he kind of... He's a towering figure in the academic study of English in the 20th century and uh, with his wife, Queenie. And it, it, it's clear that in lots of ways he did a, a great deal to establish the seriousness. You know, he was kind of influenced heavily by T.S. Eliot, although they fell out in... Um, you know, he 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 made Downing that one of the one of the great kind of centres of, of English studies in, in Britain. He he's founded Scrutiny, the, the the magazine. He was he had the highest possible standards, um, and he felt that the novel and the form of the novel, in a, in a way, 
whereas we're talking about storytelling, that was not really interesting to 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 Levis. He, Levis was, um, and I, there, there are people who argue, and I probably agree that his best his best writing is on po- poetry. He, he was, he's better on poetry than I think he is on fiction because there's a there's a thing about fiction that's called the plot, that's called the story. And one of the reasons, he, I mean, you know, the one the ones he loves, the the writers he loves are Henry James, George Eliot, Conrad. I mean, Conrad is an interesting case. He, you know, famously decried Dickens as a mere entertainer, and then sort of realised that later in life, he and Queenie came back and wrote a sort of book called, on Dickens the novelist, which has got some brilliant writing. I mean, the thing about Levis, he's very, very good on 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 all kinds of things, but he was a really, really deeply unpleasant human being in lots of ways. Very, very vindictive. Uh, grudges were kept for years and, and and were acted on. So, of course. I mean, what Terence seems to me to be, he, he's a, a bright grammar school boy. Um, I mean, you know, feel a very strong connection who grew up being as interested in science as you were in stories. And the idea that there was this thing called literature, which was was sort of pure and untouched. And my tutor told me a great story about going. He said he took, he was John Jones. He, he was, again, would have fallen wrote some very, very influential books uh, in the 60s and then fell away. But he was also the football correspondent for The Observer and he took Levis to the pub and he remembered that Levis, while he was ordering a pint of bitter, Levis had a glass of soda water and a plate of scrambled eggs, you know, surrounded by men smoking and eating pork pies and drinking beer. And you have this Levis with his white shirt and his kind of... you know, it, and you know, Nevis hated the dilettante, but he kind of, yeah, he he he's a sort of monstrous figure, as um, Edith Edith Sitwell called him, a tiresome, whining, pettifogging little pipsqueak, which is really unfair because he was also a great and important and sensitive critic. But Una, what was Cambridge? So, what was Cambridge like when? Terence from the East End, from the grammar school on the scholarship arrived. Well, it's an interesting time. I sort of, I sort of activated my networks and a, a former colleague of mine, um, she's a, a professor emerita Anglo-Ruskin English, Nora Crook, and she's in Cambridge just a, just a little bit later. But she sort of sent me this lovely sketch of what it must have been like. He probably went up in about about fifty four, I think. Was probably um, when he must have gone up. Um, so she says he sounds a working class scholarship boy. The kind of person who made Cambridge seem in my time, accent on seem, a meritocratic powerhouse. I don't think that the Tripos or Downing College would have fostered his love for science fiction, but perhaps national service would have done. He might have felt he'd come at a nothing time too late for Wolf Mankiewicz, Tom Gunn and Ted Hughes, whose exploits he would have heard of, and too early for the space of actors of the satire boom or Trevor Nunn and Ian McKellen probably just too early for the best Cambridge prank ever, putting an Austin 7 on the Senate House roof. But he would have been a contemporary of Jonathan Miller, who made waves at the footlights in his first year in 1954 and who came up earlier than his fellow fringers. He would have been around when Leslie Halliwell, manager of the Rex Cinema Cambridge, got around the censors and screened Marlon Brando in The Wild One. And I can imagine, and this I think it's very important about Cambridge, I can imagine that science and engineering and astronomy in Cambridge would have been very exciting things happening then too. So that's a kind of snapshot that maybe he fell between these two moments that we're used to thinking of, but that we see the bubbling of other things that are about to happen. 
and, and Matthew, that doesn't lead that experience doesn't lead Terence towards academia, does it? I mean, he he does his national service after he graduates, and then and then what does he do for the next ten years? Well, he goes to work into in advertising, which is, is I think. He wasn't the only pupil of Levis uh, who did that. Possibly that was an act of rebellion too. But I think what's interesting in it is about is in a way how the influence of Cambridge seems seems to have been in many ways something to resist rather than um, offering a path to follow. Because yes, we get the we get the national service, we get that spell in advertising, and that's how he falls into the orbit of his mentor Malcolm Hulk, who is the person who kind of gets him into television writing, because that's what his uh, job is. Also a former member of the Communist Party, Malcolm Holt, what he and Terence had in common politically, not much possibly, um, but uh, but certainly Hulk was such an important influence on, on Terence in those days. So yes, I think in a way he may be kicking against uh, those things. I mean, his great strength for me, and I, I, this is the thing I write about in this, this piece in The Gifts of Reading, is his, that sense of him as what I call a, as a cultural democrat. You know, in my house, we didn't only read books. We listened to the radio and we watched telly and we went to the cinema and it was all part of the same cultural stew. And that is a thing we try and do here on Batlisted. And I think that way of looking at how these things work comes to me from Terence, actually, that, you know, clearly for lots of um, reluctant, what we would call reluctant readers, Doctor Who books were their way into reading. Well, I wasn't a reluctant reader. I think my mother thing I get, I got from Terence, and I don't know how you, Una, and Matthew would feel about this as well. Is that sense that it was all there for the taking? You, you could, you these things, these things all mixed together. You know, the literariness of, of Doctor Who and the and putting the classic books on television. They all speak to that idea that that we can draw on whatever we want to get our cultural experiences, and we don't have to to use a very twenty first century phrase, stay in our lane. You know, these things inform one another. When we think about a book, we don't only think of it in terms of other books. We think about it in terms of other forms of culture and our and our own lives. So for me, that is Terence's great gift to uh, to the culture. I completely agree. I, I know that, I, I mean, just very simply, that many of those uh, John Pertwee stories that he, he was scripted as for I, I I wouldn't have seen. I would have experienced them first through the prose of Terence Dix and then, you know, probably not seen them till they got a video release in the 90s, half of them. So they were the only form that the story had for me. And that made that shift between television and being able to I, I think it I think it taught me to be able to read television with the uh psychological depth that you would get from a narrative. Mm. Well, listen, it's backlisted and we have such excellent guests here, so we're going to have a little competition now. So uh, one of the spin-offs of the whole Doctor Who industry and the career of the various people involved with it is um, uh, there's a whole substrand of memoirs and autobiographies, of which by some margin the most extraordinary is that by Tom Baker, which was published in 1997. It's called Who on Earth is Tom Baker? It also is one of the... You've not read Derek Sherwin's account of running a bar in Thailand, then. <laughs> or, sorry, a bungee jumping business. <laughs> I, I haven't. Come back, we'll talk about it. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Tom Baker's uh, memoir spawned Tom Baker's audiobook, which is one of the greatest audiobooks ever recorded. And 
Uh, it's not available in the shops. It's never it never made it to CD. It's not available on Audible, but it is available on the internet, and we will play. We will put a link to it on our website. But I want to just uh, play you a clip and ask John and our guests to be paying special attention towards the end when Tom starts talking about. Uh, things he takes comfort from now. For more than six years, I left myself and floated about as a hero. Nobody was allowed to smoke or swear near me. I always sat down if I could, for the children were always a bit alarmed at my height. And so I was able to avoid my real self during all these activities and pursue the fantasy life of the benevolent alien. And being able to escape the despised self kept me in good spirits. The welcome and smiles came from all levels of the audience. There was no hostility anywhere. I think this was because the character I was didn't threaten anyone. It was all rather dotty, and I became used to being called doctor by real doctors and nurses, and the pleasure the children derived from all this was enough to make me happy. It was no great sacrifice, I can tell you. Nowadays, I escape into the world of Charles Dickens. What a pecksniff I might have been. But any of the great hypocrites would do me. There is a serene quality in a fine hypocrite that I greatly admire. I don't think it's possible to be a frenzied hypocrite. That wouldn't do at all. There's nearly always a sublime self-assurance to a good hypocrite, don't you think? Hypocrites are not prone to self-doubt. I always imagine that great hypocrites have no interior life at all. What you see is what they are. All good actors have a touch of the hypocrite. I think I was born to be a hypocrite, all exterior and hollow, but wanting to amuse. Hypocrites can be very generous too, so long as the world is watching. I'd like to specialise in them. Bounderby, Sapsy, Fosco and Chadband. Oh, and Turveydrop, that master of deportment. He'd be another good one. I'll get my agent onto it. Perhaps I could do a one-man show of hypocrites, and would we'll call it Hypocrites with Tom Baker. <laughs> let me tell you i must say to listeners before i open the quiz you could stick a pin anywhere in that audiobook reading and find an absolute masterful 30 seconds minute two minutes like we just heard it's absolutely wonderful okay so tom baker there listed literary hypocrites and I'm going to hold one back for a very specific reason. But he seems to be drawing from Dickens, doesn't he? So, John, let's start with you. I'm going to name the hypocrite and I want you to name the source material. Right. And remember, it's Dickens, OK? Pecksniff. Uh, old Curiosity Shop. No, 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 no. No, Martin Chuzzlewit. Sorry. Martin Chuzzlewit. Chuzzlewit. Martin Chuzzlewit. Chuzzlewit. That's right. OK. Yes, uh, we'll go to Una for, Una for the next one. Bounderby. I've... I've... No idea. I've not read enough tickets. I'm hopeless. Uh, uh, that's uh, Sydenham Sweet. Uh, <laughs> Bounderby. Is Bounderby in David? Uh, yes, uh, hard, times. hard Times. Absolutely. Yes, Hard John Times. John and yes. Matt. No conferring. Yes. Hard Times is the right yeah. answer. Uh, to uh, Matthew, Chadband. That's the, I know that's the Reverend Chadband. 
isn't it? But which it is. one is he in? Is he in? That's for, what I'm asking you. Is he a friend of that charitable, horrible charitable lady in Bleak House? It is Bleak House. Ooh, very yes. good. Wow. Matthew well, Sweet so doing very well. Oh. Okay, so to Mitchinson again, Turveydrop. Mr. Turveydrop is from which novel? <laughs> All right, calm down, Matthew. Turveydrop. I can't. It's not Pickwick. I can't. He's Bleak House as well. Is They're he? all Bleak, there's Bleak, Bleak House. House again. Yeah. Bleak House. Yeah. Okay, you know what? So... You know why I know that? I can't, I just want, you know why I know that? At my it's interview at Oxford, I had an interview with the great Dickensian A.O.J. Cockshut. Cockshut, the great chain of being. I went to the, yeah, I went to the interview. <laughs> I saw him lecture once. <laughs> I was waiting for the interview and uh, he came out of the room and he, he nodded to me. It was incredibly cold. The heating wasn't on. In my memory, he was wearing a Russian hat, a kind of Russian hat indoors, but surely that can't be right. He came in. He, he went to the <laughs> toilet about six feet away from me, and I heard every damn thing. And then he emerged, and then he called me in for the interview, and his first question was, what is the significance of Mr. Turveydrop? And all I could think of was the fact that I just listening, listening, I just listened him produce a great curl of excrement. <laughs> that's why I never went to Hartford College, Oxford. <laughs> that's genius. Well, under normal circumstances, I would feel nervous about being able to follow that anecdote, Matthew. But the, the next question is, which novel by Dickens does Fosco appear? Dickens? No, that's 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 a trick question. He's not. Well, in Tom says it's Dickens, but well, but... he's wrong, isn't he? Tom doesn't know everything. Tom is mixing up his Wilkie Collins. And his by Dickens. an incredible coincidence, I recognise from... that one. <laughs> yep, I knew that one. <laughs> what well, Matthew? What's it from? Uh, from the Woman in White. Woman in White, as edited by uh, as edited for... by me, Fosco, the name of the of the cat, also the name of Oscar Wilde's cat. That's very good. So that leaves Una. What novel, Dickens or Collins or somebody else that Tom was referring to, does Sapsy come from? Oh, that's definitely uh, Doctor Who and the Claws of Axel. <laughs> what, Pigbin Sapsy? Pigbin <laughs> Sapsy, that's Sapsy's the one. near near Nunton, isn't it, on that, on that bit of the Essex coast? Listeners, I don't know because I can't find any mention... Yeah. of a character called Sapsy in the Victorian novel that Tom is referring to. But is he in Hard Times as well? No. Bleak House again. Bleak House. It's Bleak, Bleak House. House again. Well, do you think Tom possibly could have been, had just finished rereading Bleak House when he wrote it? <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps he just had a very interesting holiday in Sapsy. Sapsy. Uh, how is it spelt? S-E-Y, um, Andy. I just hear what you hear. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Mr. Sapsy's in Edwin Drood. Edwin Drood. Oh! Edwin Drood. He is the purest jackass in Cloisterham. Matthew, congratulations. Let's just Google that. You win. (laughs) You win the same prize that was offered to, in 1984, to the Target Books Bonanza Competition. Uh, in which the lucky winner could get their hands on a copy of a leather-bound edition of Peter Haining's The Key to Time. <laughs> you get to have lunch with Terence Dix. Oh. But, but in order to, to seal the deal, you, have to, you had to let people know, you had to answer questions, and, then, and the same, the, uh, Una, I'll be looking to you for an answer as well. Uh, 
which uh, you had to answer in not more than 20 words, which of the doctor's companions you would most like to be and why? So I have to occupy the body of a of a you do of a of a relatively young British actor. Do I? Well, instantly uh, I'm Josephine Grant because I, I I would I would want to occupy the headspace of Katie Manning. Yeah, <laughs> so, I'm sorry. But that is but, the right answer. I, that is the right that, answer. That, that needs more than twenty words, and I'm not saying any of them on here. <laughs> okay, that's perfectly acceptable. That's uh, that's Joe Grant, who was the companion to the second companion to uh, John Pertwee's Doctor, the third yeah. Doctor. Uh, Una, same question to you, please. Which have... companion? I have no interest in being a companion. I, I am the, the doctor. That's the end of the matter. Matthew, you can you can travel in space and time with me if you like. <laughs> All right, it's a deal. excellent. Yeah. It's a it. deal. Now let's give the last word. This is for, this is from a wonderful documentary that is sometimes on the iPlayer and is currently on YouTube as well. Called "On the Outside," it looked like an old-fashioned police box, which is about the Target novelizations. It was made in two thousand and nine by Mark Gatiss. And this is Mark uh, talking to Terence about the influence of these books. It's not an exaggeration to say that for so many people, it, it was their introduction to literature. Uh, it opened doors not only into Doctor Who's past and, and mm. other things, but just to reading in general. And I think, honestly, everyone owes you a, a huge oh, debt of thanks. Um, no, I mean, uh, I, I think if you can get a kid reading for pleasure, not because it's work, but actually reading for pleasure, mm. you know, You've got it's him. a great step forward. Yeah. You can start with me and work, you know, start yeah. with Dicks and work his way up to Dickens, <laughs> as it were, you know, but um, as long as you get them reading. Who could disagree with that? I promised an exclusive. Here is the exclusive. BBC Books next August will publish a compendium volume of 10 of the target novelizations written by Terence Dix with the title The Essential Terence Dix. So that's coming in August next year, The Essential Terence Dix. Uh, alas, the toiling of the cloister bell tells us we must close the door of the TARDIS and be off on our next adventure. Huge thank you to Matthew and Una for sharing their deep knowledge and passion for this most loved of writers and story cycles. To Nikki for some deaf work with the sonic screwdriver and to Unbound for standing in as this podcast version of Unit. <laughs> You can download all 123 previous episodes of Batlisted, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at batlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter or Facebook and now in sound and pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Batlisted. We aim to survive without paid for advertising. Your generosity helps us to do that. All patrons get to hear Backlisted episodes early. And for half the price of the complete Doctor Who Series 12 DVD, lot listeners get two extra lot listeds a month. That location in eSpace where we three go to expand on movies, television, music, as well as books or anything else that pops up on our monitors. But the absolute pinnacle of support, our version of the Time Lords High Council, are our master storytellers. And we have five new ones to whom we'd like to publicly pledge our undying gratitude. 
Yes, thank you. Castellans, Sean Salter, Emma Hardy, Katerina Fake, Lorna Symes, and Frank Cottrell Boyce, who, who really is a master storyteller. Not, not the master storyteller, though. That really wouldn't be good. And uh, here is our latest list of lot listeners, those brave and loyal companions who make the whole backlist adventure possible. So thank you very much to Susanna Reid, Christina, Omar Chaudhuri, Evan Lazarus, Bill Gales, Tom Husser, Jill Laker, Deborah L. Pugh, Charlotte Denny, Henry Elliott, Mark My Words, Carmel Brennan, Laura Sewell, Patrick McCarthy and Alessandra Prentice. To Amanda Raleigh, Bill G, Debbie Baker, Emily Panitza, Justine Jones, Kathy Hass, Carla Garner, Dylan Smith, Katarina Kuchaska, Jill Johnson, Adam Tucker Moody, Kristen Garlock, Jeff Chiskowski, Lee Rilvas, and Emis Phylus. Thank you. I'd also like to say thanks to Adam Moody, who who very uh, publicly on Twitter has been keeping track of the fact that he listened to all 123 episodes of Batlisted in the space of about a fortnight. Why on earth you want to give us any money and not never want to hear our voices again? I don't know. But anyway, thank you very much. Adam. Brilliant. And that's it. Uh, we'll be back in a fortnight. Thank you for listening. Uh, thanks, Matthew. Uh, thanks, Una. Uh, there's only one way we could possibly go out. <laughs> choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.